0: listener production this
1: is the five of my life with me nigel marsh the series where i talk to notable people about five of their defining things the way it works is my guests always choose a favorite film book song place and possession they tell me their choices in advance so i can research them but they don't tell me why they've chosen them that's the subject of our conversation The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Peter Fitzsimons spins some fabulous yarns in a manner that only he can. In this lively and energising conversation, I learn more about what drives the man to write books of great Australian history. Peter Fitzsimons. Nigel Marsh! Um, Here we are! Welcome to The Five of My Life. I want to know, from a man who is not short of an opinion and a bit of certainty, is how did you find the decision-making process to come up with your five? Was it easy for you? Just bang?
2: Yes, no, that came came very easily. So
1: what Fitzsimons has done is he's messed with the format because for the first (laughs) time in Five of My Life history, he's chosen a film, the name of which... He
2: doesn't know. Well, there's know. several. Well, the one that really I don't remember it now. The one that absolutely <laughs> blew me away. If it marked my life, if that's the thing of you know. You were seven years old. That's it. That's the one with my with my mum. And I was. We were up at the farm, and we would get. So this is. We have a farm about an hour north of Peach, uh, hour north of Sydney, called Peach Ridge. At Peach Ridge, and. We would get the television set. We would rent a black and white television every two years—Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games. We'd have it for ten days, so for those ten days, I'd be completely absorbed, you know. And so the uh, the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games would finish at whatever time it was, and then one night, Mum and I—I I don't know why she let me wait, wait, you know, stay up—but we were watching this black and white film, and I can still see what happened. And there was this old man and this weeping, beautiful young girl, maybe. 16 or 17 years old and she was weeping over some unhappiness and this old man in this English accent says, "'My dear, my dear!' You must understand that the force of life which makes the flowers bloom and the trees grow and the birds sing is the same force of life that is in you. You must suck the juice from the marrow of life and let it run down your chin. And it was just, that's not the exact words because I've Googled those words and they don't come up, they only come up under me writing about it. (laughs) And I've talked to Doug Anderson, who you might remember, was the great film, you know, like the great knowledge about films. And I've talked to who else? Not Bill Collins. But, um... There's been other people I've approached over the years to try and find that. To try film. and find it. Do you know
1: what? I, I found the nearest thing. Yeah, go
2: on. But 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 it's it,
1: it Henry David Thoreau, who yeah. I adore, yeah. has a quote which is: "I want. I went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately. I wanted to live deep and suck all the marrow of life." There we go. And that, but that was from Dead Poets yeah. Society, which is after this, so it's not. it, yeah, it couldn't have been the Look, dead
2: poets. It may be that I'm melding together various memories, but certainly that thing of this old man. Talking to this young girl, and the theme was that the force of life that makes the birds sing is the same, and flowers bloom is the same force of life. in you don't be downbeat, don't be depressed, and you know you'll have bad days, but Jesus, how good is life? Don't suck it up slowly to yeah. the edge of your
1: grave, That's skid it. in sideways, going yeah. woohoo, <laughs> <laughs> and leave a good-looking. What is it? Leave a good-looking corpse. Is that the way? <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me, mate, is uh. How has that played out in your life? What, what have been the the in, in the different eras of your life? Where you've got the sucking the marrow out of life, juice dripping down your skin, is what um, what have been the downsides as well as the upsides of that approach to life?
2: No, well, somebody close to me who'll remain nameless, let's just let's just call him my older brother David, um, <laughs> said to me said to me he's David's thirteen years older than me, and he helps with my, with my, me with my books. Um, he's a great proofreader. He's got a very short attention span. So when he goes through with a red pen and he goes, I don't care, zzz, I know. All right, that's a that's a good sign. But David said to me that if he got if he had a car accident tomorrow and died, he'd go to his grave fairly happy because he's had a great life. And I, I hope these words are not recalled at my funeral, a week from now. <laughs> but I I I don't have I haven't had a particular plan for a life. You know, it's just everything's just sort of. Happened, but I would say there were two men that I met, glancing acquaintance with both, that had a big, big influence on me. When I was 19 years old, my third book was called Hitchhiking for Ugly People, and it was sort of the experiences of hitchhiking around Australia and through Africa and so forth. But, but for ugly it, people, oh, it was just because that was a clever title, yeah, you, you, Mark, you were a beautiful young man, I was, I was a beautiful you young are, man. You were a that was good before looker. 10 years of football took over. <laughs> but I, when I was uh traveling, I so I hitchhiked around Australia. And I met two men in the space of four days that sort of had a bit of an influence on me, and one was a guy. I went my long my long lost cousins lived in number thirty Circe Circle Dalkeith in Perth, and so I knocked on the door. They sort of knew I was coming. I hadn't washed in, you know, six or seven days across the Nullarbor. They said, "Yes, come come this way. Bathroom's here. We'll <laughs> get you some towels, and you know, sort of scrubbed me up a little bit." And that night they took me out, and I met a man that he owned the only service station on the Nullarbor, which I'd passed through, and he was living a good life. And, you know, I just – I don't I didn't particularly warm to him, but he had five children and he had a tennis court and the house and, you know, and I just looked at that and I thought, yep, I want children. I'd like – you know, I'd like children. I want to marry like this guy's married. I'd like a tennis court, you know, in terms of, you know, I don't know, just because uh, I'd grown up on a tennis court. So basically meeting him confirmed, looking at a man that was not my father and say, yep, I want to live like that. And the other one was a guy that was about forty years old, and he married a woman that was about thirty years old. And in all through his twenties, he had travelled the world and done different things. And I thought, and he had—I remember—he had a four-year-old daughter. And I uh, remember—I just remember thinking, "Yep, that's what I want to do. I want in my twenties, I want to kick around." And so that's basically what I did. I kicked around in my twenties. I went to this little. First, I went. I went to. this uh, place in Italy, Ravigo, south of Venice, just south of Venice, played rugby there for a season and there met, I guess, the third man, Milto Baratella, who was an architect. Si tu casa bella, chiamare Baratella, who was this fantastic man who was the first man I'd ever met that cooked. You know, like, you know, it was just like, wow, he cooked and at the age of 56, he'd never hit the thing of a piano and he'd learnt to play the piano at the age of 56 and played it like a maestro at 65 and I looked at the way he lived his life. And what I say to my sons and my daughter is, you know, at your age, look up, look to people and look how they live their lives. And you'll see things that you absolutely admire. And you'll see things where you go, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll tell you what, I am not going to live like that. Your second
1: choice, you have chosen. So you, you may have messed with my format on your on. film without having a title. You haven't messed with the format for your book, but you have chosen a book about kidnap and rape. Brave Cool, I love it, the fan club, Irvin Wallace, 1974, justify yourself, man.
2: Yeah, well, it was, uh, again, I'm referring to other people that you'll probably know, Bill Leek, Do you remember Bill Leek? He was a very hard right-wing cartoonist at The Australian. Not my favourite cartoons, frankly, but he was a wonderful man, Bill. He was a great friend of mine in the early 90s and when he was at the Herald and I kept in touch with him and we were still friends when he died. When Bill told me once that when he was 13 or 14, he was at this art gallery because he just had art in his bones and he was looking at this Rembrandt and the guide, it was down in Canberra, and the guide had said, well, some people say that this painting by Rembrandt is not necessarily all of it by Rembrandt. It might be done One of my students might have done Bill said, I was 14 years old, I looked at it and and he moved on and I looked on Bill. Of course that that elbow wasn't done by Rembrandt and you can see the way he's done the chin. That's not the way Rembrandt does a chin. Anyway, Bill's point was at the age of 14, he had an instinctive understanding of art and beyond his years and for whatever reason, at the age of 12, all my older brothers and sisters were always reading books, as were mum and dad. And, you know, they were probably reading worthier, more intellectually challenging books. And I liked Irving Wallace, Pot Boilers. And I would devour every Irving Wallace book. And I would think, well, why? why why, is his stuff so compelling? So I deconstructed it and I'd look at it. And the way that Irving Wallace would tell a story would be he'd have four strands running parallel to each other. And it would always start with a beautiful blonde in the kitchen. And she was absolutely gorgeous, and she was doing this, and she was doing that, and she was just untying the the button of her When there's a knock on the door, you go, "Hey, just wait." What? Well, what? What happened after she undid the top button and the knock on the door? And you, he would leave you there, and then he'd start on a on a different story, and there'd be something, and there'd be a shot in the shot in the distance. Well, what? And then you'd go to three or four, and then finally you'd get back to the blonde who'd undone the top so button. Parallel storylines. Parallel storylines pushing towards a climax that usually came with two pages to go, and it all came together. And that had a huge influence on me when I started doing my own books because it's a way of storytelling where you keep the narrative moving and so you're looking for – so if, you know, I did my book on Kakoda, which was my – Breakthrough book in terms of, I suppose, sales, which has now done 320,000 copies. You've got the Australians pushing one way, you've got the Japanese pushing the other way. <laughs> you know, so you can do the parallel storylines so long as you get enough information from the Japanese side of things. So I, I have recently finished your book on Breaker Moran.
1: What did you think of the book? I loved it, but the thing. I didn't like him at all. No, I I, I hated him. I'm still upset about Lieutenant Annan. Yes, I, I that really. I love it that you love him. I, I mean, I just so the Battle of Ellen's River. Yeah, I mean, so I, I can't recommend the book highly enough. But um, you, you are well. You're Australia's most successful non-fiction uh, writer. But I, I love the art of being able to do a page-turner. But on the parallel uh, storylines, there are some writers who haven't got a sure enough hand on that so mm. if I I want to know what happens to the blonde with the rose between her yeah. teeth right and you go to a different story but you go on too long not interestingly yeah. enough I'm thinking well bloody hell I want to get back to the yes yeah, yeah. so you've, it's it's an art it's not as easy as you make no. it sound you do it well, beautifully but
2: it's not easy but but I love the fact that you love James Adam because what's he got to do with breaking around nothing nothing at all I don't care it's a cracker story and when I came across his diary entries and the, the the letter from his widow it leaps from the page it leaps from the page who was this guy they all loved him he was the one that kept them all safe in the battle and the, the one that really got me onto the Battle of Ellen's River to just describe that broadly you had about 300 Australians 200 Rhodesians and English atop this hill surrounded by two or three thousand Boers. And they, they had artillery and they pounded them. And the Australians had, among others, they had coal miners who knew what to do. So when the sun goes down on the first day and the detail, what about the detail where they have these donkeys and these horses and and one of the details is one of the bits of shrapnel comes and neatly takes out the spine of this horse. So they're watching the shells fall among the horses. They're screaming and winning. But one of the pieces of shrapnel neatly takes off the spine and the whole carcass of the thing of the horse just goes <clears throat> flat. And I remember that as a detail. But that night the coal miners get going and they dig the trenches and they get underground. And the story that I love there is after three or four days of this, the Board General sends in an emissary to say, we've got you surrounded. You got to give up. We're going to blow the shitter out of you. At which point Colonel Hoare, the English colonel, says, and I love these words, he says, you don't understand even if I wanted to surrender and I don't, even if I did, if I went up back to the top of the hill and I told the Australians we surrender, those bastards would slit my throat. We don't surrender and they didn't. When I go into the books, I like to use my ignorance as a tool. I generally start totally ignorant and I I think, well, if I don't know that, you know, the building blocks of this story, it's a good chance a lot of the readers won't. So I put the building blocks into the story so you understand. For example, when I did Kokoda, I didn't know how many were in a platoon, a battalion, or a division. So as I'm telling the story, I make sure that there's an explanation that one of the characters who equally didn't know understands as he goes along. And so you, with Breaker Morant, I go into it thinking this guy was a great guy He was part Banjo Patterson, he was part man from Snowy River and he was cruelly put up against the wall by those pommy bastards.
1: And oh my, don't spoiler alert, but gosh, that isn't how you end up thinking when you finish your wonderful book. Your third choice is a song. You have chosen, you, it's the third choice by Bob Dylan, your colleague at the mm. Herald, uh, Kate McClymont, chose Like a Rolling Stone. Yep. Ronnie Kahn chose A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Mm. And you chose Hurricane from Bob's
2: 17th studio album. You'll be doing society a fever. That son of a bitch is brave and getting braver. And my brother had a tape, uh, those those 45-minute tapes of Desire, And when I was at Knox, which is a fairly, you know, very privileged elite boys' school, et cetera, et cetera, you know, very conservative, very white, very Presbyterian, very, you know, we didn't have the term white privilege at the time, but looking back, very white privileged. And it was, you know, I started listening to this album and I'd get to this thing of Dylan singing Son of a Bitch is Bray and there was an anger to it. There was a naughtiness to the words and I played it again and again before you, I moved into the rest of the album, and it's fantastic. And my son, who's a very good writer, also has Dylan in his bones, and the lesson of Dylan is words do not have to make sense technically. You can't break them down and so, to make them make sense sometimes. It's the formation of the words that can generate the feeling, and that for me is the... The Dylan is in my bones and it's the way I want to live. You know, I I love colourful characters. All of Dylan's songs are filled with with colourful characters. Have you listened to his... um? Or yeah, of re- course
1: I have. I've listened to everything. No, no, no. His Nobel Prize winning speech. Yes, of course. So in and that, Paddy Smith singing. He, he um, quotes the John Donne poem. Yep. And then when he's finished quoting it, he says, I don't know what it means either, but it right. sounds good.
2: Whenever I do books in areas that I'm not expert in, which is every book, I like I like to find the most, not pedantic's not the right word, but certainly the most expert. So when I did the book on Ned Kelly, there's a guy, there was a guy called Ian Jones, 86 years old, who'd studied Ned since the age of seven. No joking. That's what he went to the Victoria Library. He just devoured it. And when I finished the book, I, I go to Ian and say, look, here's a red pen. Here's my manuscript, please and anyway, Ian, as highly revered as Ian was, there was another one that they all, Ned Kelly is awash with Ned Kelly nutters. Australia is awash with Ned Kelly nutters, most of whom hate each other, three-quarters of whom acknowledge Ian as the as the oracle, but all of whom acknowledge this woman living uh, called Sharon Hollingsworth and she was the one they all went, yeah, well, she's the one. Who is she? She's a woman that lives in North Carolina in a trailer park has she ever been to Australia? No. But in the age of the internet, she'd come across Ned Kelly in the early days of the internet, and there wasn't enough hours in the day. For, and so anyway, when after Ian had gone through it, I go and send it to her. 48 hours later, it comes back with my 24 errors that she'd spotted and all documented. When I tried to pay her, she didn't want to take a cent because that would sort of sully what she was doing, so I ended up sending her a new computer so she didn't have to go to the local library. But in the age of the internet, the information is out there and it's deep, but, you know, with serious researchers, you can get to the truth of the matter. So a question for you, Peter.
1: Is Dylan uh, famous for writing protest songs at his early career? Mm. Uh, You've got a platform, many, many platforms. Mm. Uh, Talk to me, uh, talk to us about uh, the responsibilities you feel with that platform.
2: I want to be at the forefront of progressivism. Right. You know, I mean, I mentioned the Republic movement. I have a very simple premise on that. Australia can do better in the 21st century than find our heads of state from a family of pommy aristocrats living in a palace in London. (laughs) How hard is this? You know, and so I, I, things like, I suppose, you know, if I'm proud of things that I've, you know, pushed, I'm proud of that. I'm certainly proud of pushing very strongly same-sex marriage. You know, for me, climate change, I wish I knew more. I know we're in deep shit. I know we've got to do more. Um, In sport, the thing that I push hardest is concussion, you know. The fellow that you admire, we both admire, Sir Michael Parkinson, came out to Australia two or three years ago and he had a thing at the Opera House, which was vignettes of the best interviews. And he had four vignettes from Muhammad Ali. And the first vignette, beautiful young black man, 67 years old, uh, in 1967, I have wrestled with an alligator for this fight. I have tussled with a wheel. Handcuffed, lightning, put thunder in jail. Bad, fast. Why, only last week I murdered a rock, injured a brick. I'm so bad I'll make medicine look sick. Bad, fast. And just, wow. Four years later, he's the angry young black man, activist. Then Viet Cong never called me the N-word. And he's angry. 77, when uh, when he interviews him, he's starting to slur his words. And then in 1981 and 1982, just on the eve of him fighting Larry Holmes in his last fight, there is Muhammad, and he's speaking like, and you come away devastated, angry, because you know who killed Muhammad? We killed Muhammad. I killed Muhammad because we loved him so much. We so much loved to see him fighting. We were still saying, "Yeah, Muhammad, get in." You know, you're whatever, however you old you are, 36 years old. And when Muhammad Ali, you know, goes down with Parkinson's disease, so-called, whatever it was. Everybody says it's Parkinson's disease. It could have happened to anyone, or it was the it was the uh, spray they put on the Mexican training camp, or it's the most famous man in the world. Of course, he retreated inside himself. Nobody on the wanted to say seven hundred punches in the head. Nobody wanted to say the truth. This guy was in the ring with the baddest men on the planet for 20 years, and he got hit in the head, and it rattled his brain, and it killed him. That's what happened. So your fourth choice on Five My Life, your
1: location, is your farm, mate. Tell mm. us about that.
2: Oh, well, Mum and Dad, after Mum served in the Second World War as a physio come nurse putting back together wounded soldiers, and uh, she was a rich girl from Wurrunga and Dad was a poor boy from Marunga, and they'd known each other for a while, but they both came back from the war, got together, and uh, then Dad, you know, bought work went picking oranges. He was well educated, but he had a very bad back. I don't know if it was from the war or whatever it was, maybe fast bowling and cricket. But the advice was to get over your bad back, you're going to have to work outdoors. So they bought sixty acres of uh, farmland up at Pete's Ridge, and they ended up growing. they they ended up growing oranges, lemons, tomatoes, and children. And I was the seventh of those children. And we had this, they say if you had a happier life, You remember the sun shining. If you had an unhappy life, you remember wet Wednesday afternoon strudging home from school. Well, when I look back on life on that farm, the sun was shining. And when mum died, dad died in 92, we buried him where he dropped, the ashes where he dropped on the farm, put a big, big block of granite there and planted a tree. And we buried Mum two years later, 50, 50 yards up the hill in the most beautiful spot of the farm. Is that where you're going to go when? That's you... exactly right. right. And I lay down there when we visit. You know, we go up to the farm fairly regularly, and I, I actually with my eldest son Jake, about three years ago, there was a little sunny little spot about thirty yards over from Mum and fifty yards up from Dad. That's the and place. I, I lay down <laughs> in <laughs> the sunlight <laughs> and I said, Jake, you got it. Remember yeah. this. This will do me, and you know the tree that you put it. But it's it's a thing of. When mum died, we were gathered around the bed as she breathes her last before she goes. One of her lines, she said, I'm, you know, as I leave you, it wasn't actually as articulate as this, it was more you know, it was she was in pain, but but, but you know, bowel cancer and the whole thing. But she said, as I go, I'm nourished by the fact that you will I know you will all look after each other. And we have, and we look after each other's children and our children look after each other and for me that is what a family is and it came from life on that farm looking after each other and you know every now and then one of our children might be in some kind of crisis and you know everybody brothers and sisters red alert red alert this is the issue what are we going to do how are we going to do it you know without being intrusive but it's helpful but that but that farm is the spiritual holy land for me and mum before she died would um she was on the PNC you know and CWA and all this sort of stuff and about must have been about 1990 she was doing a stall in man, man street gosford and she was there all day and the final thing selling was this horrible muddy sculpture It's like crystallized mud sculpture of a of a warrior medieval soldier on a horse Anyway, at the end of the day, last thing left, nobody would buy it. So mum puts down her own $10, brings him home, a horrible little fellow. And when she dies, we go, well, what are we going to put on mum's grave beside the big block of rock? So we put the soldier there on his thing and 5th of July, 94, she died, established the grave six months later. I suppose four years later, the the soldier's right arm fell off and then his left arm (laughs) fell off and then his horse is on his knees. And as the years go by... (laughs) Um, you know, it'll be ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But I always say to my family, look, everything's going well in my life. But if ever I I disappeared, if ever I was in a crisis to beat all crisis and you wanted to know where to find me, you'll find me at the farm, probably beside mum and the soldier.
1: It's beautiful hearing you talk about it, mate. It's just wonderful. Your your, um, possession on Five In My Life, Tesla.
2: Oh, yes, what a, wink. What a <laughs> wank. What a wank. What, <laughs> I'm I actually, not saying anything. Did I actually, I'm not saying anything. Did I actually write that? <laughs> you wrote, I love my Tesla because it goes very fast
1: and women wink at me. <laughs> <laughs> did I write that? No no, 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 not the last bit.
2: No, I know. Look, I know I should say it was something my mother gave me or my mother, but it just happened. I wrote that quickly and the truth of it is I do love it. I absolutely love it. And I'm not a car person. You know, like, so I, I never understood, you know, obsession with cars and things like that. But uh, when I, um, you know, I was sort of wanting to go electric, big friends came to us in 2001 and they said, we've got a Prius outside. We said, what's a Prius? And then, you know, I'd heard all the things about Tesla, so I thought I'll take it for a test drive. And it's just like, what? What? I mean, it's, I wrote a piece fast about it. Fast and quiet. Yeah, and I wrote a piece about it in the, I mean, inside, I don't know what my model is, but it's the, you know, it's the big one, the, the, the fast one, whatever it is. And it's got three, three, um, three speeds, chill, sports, ludicrous, and the fourth speed is ludicrous plus. And it can go from zero to 100 in 2.16 seconds. And my theorem on that, and anybody does buy a Tesla, be warned, inside every sober suited 58-year-old man, there is an 18-year-old hoon with a mullet trying to get out. Your your last traditional
1: question on Five My Life is who would you like to hear on Five My Life next, Peter, and why? If you
2: could get this person. Yeah. If you I mean you won't. You won't, because ah, like, I want to get-challenge get, accepted, uh, whoever that, it is, as long as they're not no, dead. No, they're not dead. The, the obvious person that I and I'd want to do, do this person if I could possibly and I've tried and I've written to him is obviously Dylan. Right. If you could ah. sit if you could and I wrote to Dylan about so last year before the plague descended, Lisa and I were in London. And we went to this uh, this uh, is it Bond Street. There was this gallery that had Dylan artwork. I didn't know that Dylan was a painter, and anyway, we we nearly bought one of the Dylan paintings until sanity set in, and you know, we were crazy to try and pay that kind of money. But I, the guy, was in touch with Dylan, and I well, I said, look, I'm a writer, and that's it. and so the, here is the thing: if 400 years ago somebody could have sat down with William Shakespeare for half a day and just wrote, who are you, where are you from, what are you about? How precious, how valuable would be five sentences on William Shakespeare from somebody that talked to him? How informative would it be? And I said, with Dylan, there's been all kinds of interviews and the rest, but he's never answered the questions If you know, like attempted to seriously say where his genius come from or his formative experiences. And he wrote that book, The Chronicles, and two pages in, he spent three quarters of a page on a home run hit by Babe Ruth. I was just what what yeah yeah okay look but Bob get back to you know get back to Dilloth get back to Minnesota where did you th- to do that so for me I wrote to Dylan's agent and said look somebody should do it I would love to do it and e- even if you put something on it which said I you know you'd search me before I go in so I've got no recording devices you make me sign something to say I can't write about it just somebody sit with Dylan for a day. So that you get it down on tape, you put it in the Smithsonian vault, this can't be open till you know, 100 years after Bob's died, but for humanity, because Dylan is the Shakespeare of our time. There is Dylan and there is daylight. I would love to hear his
1: five. Peter Fitzsimons, thank you so much, mate. I know how busy you are for you sharing barely your choices. You let me get a word in <laughs> edgeways.
2: <laughs> thank you.
1: The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicklish. Listener.